Hey, well, good morning. Oh, good to be here. Uh, you know, it's just fun. It's, it's fun to watch us growing as a church and see what God's doing. And so what, a, what a great time of worship today. Wasn't that awesome? Uh, it's, uh, yeah, we're, I think we're learning as a church, you know, what encounter is all about. We come and present ourselves before God and we come in his, seeking his name. And, and I just want to encourage you to, uh, a lot of you are doing this more and more, but to, in, to, to try to be here on time. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I, I usually don't bring that up. This is not like a guilt thing or whatever. It's just that, you know, when the body of Christ is coming before God, it's like you want everyone there. You know, it's like in the book of Revelation, every, you know, every tribe and every nation, you know, it just is not the same when half the nations are missing, you know. And uh, it's just encourage you that uh, as we grow in worship, that you'd make it a goal just to, to be here when it starts to together, we can just enter into God's presence and uh, It'd be great. Uh, so, so many things going on right now. You know, Pat didn't mention this, but you know we already have, I think it's over 220 volunteers for VBS already. Isn't that awesome? It's just cool. And, you know, we started our first essentials course this last week on pursuing God one-on-one that I'm leading on Wednesday night. Yeah, it was awesome. We had a great time. We had over two, 270 people uh, were here in this auditorium for that. And so God is just, uh, just doing so many cool things. And uh, uh, my name is Pastor Mike. If this is your very first time, I want to welcome you here, um, and we're glad you're here. Inside of your program is a white message note sheet that we use every week for our time of teaching. It's really helpful to follow along, and so uh, if you're new, you'll definitely want to pull that out uh, and, uh, and, and follow along. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and then let's jump in. Father, thank you so much for what you're doing here at our church. God, it's just so good to be here on this amazing, beautiful day and to enter into worship and experience your presence together. And now we come to your word, God, and we come because we want to meet with you. We want to encounter you. We want to uh, hear from you for our lives. We, we want to know you in new ways. And so we pray that you'd show up, that you'd come, that you'd open our eyes, our ears to, to see and to hear things that perhaps we've never seen before about who you are, your amazing love, and what you have planned for us. And so we, we pray you'd release your spirit now in this time, in this place. We pray it in your name. Amen. Um, our story starts today about 10 years ago. And uh, I, I remember uh, walking out to the mailbox and, and reaching in and getting out the, uh, the jury summons. You know? Uh, you know how that is. Oh, crud. You know, it's just like in, uh, in, the, in the previous church, I was, I was living in Vista down in South Central County at the time previous church where we were serving, uh, they, they didn't cover you for jury service. And so typically what happened, you get a jury thing in the mail, you write a letter and say we're not really covered financially, financial hardship, and they get, get excused. And so that's what I planned to do. But this time I, when I, when I, I sent it, I found out that it was not the superior court, which was local there in Vista, that I normally get called to. This was the federal court uh, down in San Diego, about 45, 60 minutes away. And, uh, and I found out the federal court is a very different experience than the superior court. And so when I, I called them up and told them my sob story, they said, you know, we really don't care. Um, you know, don't care how big the church is or what their policy is. You just need to be here. And they finally said, well, okay, we'll reduce your commitment from two weeks to one week, but you need to be here. And so that the, the week came, that Monday morning came. I got up real early to avoid the traffic, drove down to San Diego, get there. And I'm thinking, well, you know, there's no, no way I'm going to be chosen for this. Because, you know, you've all been a jury dude, right? You know how this is. You go in and then you sit there all day and they don't choose you and then you're gone. And so... Um, and, so I was, and, and, and then, of course, if you're a pastor, it's even doubly that way, because who wants to pastor on the jury? You know, those guys believe in things like right and wrong. You know, it's like you don't. And so, um, so you know you're not going to be chosen if you're a pastor, and so you're just kind of doing your thing. You're going down there. And, and so I go in this big room, and sure enough, first group called, I, I'm selected to be interviewed. You know, it's one of the people, and I can't even believe this. This never happened before. And so I get in there, and once in there, they're beginning to, you know, the, the attorneys are, 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 you know, prosecuting, defense attorneys are interviewing the different candidates, and 
uh, I, I'm getting kind of intrigued about this. Uh, I almost went to law school. I was going to go to law school at one point, and so I, I, I just kind of getting intrigued by this whole process. And I'm like, this is fascinating, man. I, I'd like to serve on this thing. I'd like to, but there's no way they're going to choose me. I'm a pastor, you know, and so they finally come to me, and I, I'm determined. I'm, gonna, I'm a pastor. I need to tell the truth. And so they said, uh, so uh, are you, uh, you know, what do you do? I'm a pastor. How big is your church? What's well, a pretty big church. Do you know any law enforcement people? Yeah, we got a ton of them in our church. I just knew this was knocking me off. Got any judges? Yeah, we got judges, you know. They ended up choosing me. <laughs> and then I got back into the, the courtroom, I mean, to the jury room, and the jury selected me to be the foreman of this federal drug running case. <laughs> well, today we're continuing our series. <laughs> And uh, it's a brand new series. We started last week. It's called Revealed. It's a study of the life and teaching of Jesus of Nazareth that's told through the eyes of one of his closest followers, perhaps his best friend, uh, the Apostle John in the Gospel of John. And and today we come to the very first chapter. Um, And if you have your Bibles, you want to open up there to chapter 1. And we're going to be studying the first 18 verses today. And... uh, John starts with this incredible claim that we're going to be unpacking today, that there was a time and a place when the creator of the universe entered into time and space to rescue us and to give us life, give us a new life. And it's an incredible claim, and he lays it out in these first 18 verses. And scholars call these first 18 verses the prologue. And in many ways, it's sort of both the the intro to the story of Jesus and also a summary of the story of Jesus all in one. Um... We started the day with a story of, of this trial in San Diego, and I'm not going to go into all the details of what happened. I'll save that for another day. But the part I will tell you is I, I remember going down there and being chosen and being kind of excited about that, going back and being selected as foreman, and like, well, this is going to be awesome. You know, you're 12 disparate people trying to come to a verdict. What a leadership challenge. I love on this. And, uh, and I remember then walking out that, that jury. After we chose I'm the foreman. They walk us out. They put us up there, you know, in the, where the jury sits. You've all seen uh, Law & Order. And, uh, and, and so you, you're sitting there and you're like, man, this is official. This is real. Like, this is like, like wow, this is America. You know, this is, woo, you know, I'm right here. And, uh, and about that time, the, the, the two attorneys come out and, and they give their opening statements. Now, if you've ever been there, you, you've seen this or maybe you've seen it on TV, but, but basically what they do in their opening statements is they both give you an introduction and a summary of what's about to happen. They introduce the case to you but they also summarize, here's what's going to happen, here's what I'm going to show, here's what I'm going to prove. Here's, the ev- here's kind of the, an overview of the evidence. And so it's an intro to the case, but a summary of the case all at once. And that's very much what the Apostle John is doing in his prologue. I look at it as the opening statement of his court case. In fact, in this opening statement, he's going to introduce Jesus of Nazareth, but he's going to give you his summary of who Jesus of Nazareth is based on the evidence that he's going to show in this book and he's going to lay it out for us. And he's even going to use courtroom language. He's going to talk about witnesses. He's going to talk about testimony. He's going to begin to introduce evidence for this case that he is going to build in the Gospel of John. And so uh, there in your note sheet, you have a section called the prologue, John's opening statement. And we're going to walk through and look at these first 18 verses together. And then we're going to talk about the, the uh, three big claims that he's making in this passage. And then finish up by talking about the implications for our lives, practical implications. So number one, here we go, verse one. Uh, In the beginning was the Word, uh, and the Word was with God, 
and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. So he says, uh, John says, let's go back to the beginning of time. I don't care where you want to set it. Put it back as far as you want. Go back further. I don't care. It doesn't make any difference. Go to eternity past. But if you go back as far as you want to go, there, whatever you want to call the beginning, there was a, a place and a time. There was a person there. And this person has a name. His name is the Word. And in a strange way, he was both with God, and so he was separate from God, different from God, and yet he was the same as God. He was God. And then he goes on, and he says in verse 3, through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And so this this word who is in the beginning, who is with God and who was God, he is actually the creator. He's the one who's created the cosmos from the largest uh, macro to the smallest, smallest micro. He's created the sun, moon, the stars, the far-flung gal- galaxies, but he's also created the electrons, the neutrons, the, the protons, the subatomic particles and quarks that make up all of uh, that we know of the cosmos. And so this word that was in the beginning, that was with God and was God, that he's a creator of all things, both positively, he's made everything. Negatively, nothing was made without him. He says it in both ways. He is the cosmos creator. Verse four, in him was life. Uh, He was the source of all life, and that life was the light of men. He's the source of all that's right and good and true in, in the human race. In verse five, that light shines in the darkness, even to this day, but the darkness has never understood it. We're the fallen planet. And this light from this word has shone throughout all of time and history, and yet we as a race have never really understood it, never really grasped it. We've also never overcome it, though. We've never put it out. If you see in the margin there, it says we've never, uh, the the, the, the alternate translation is we've never um, overcome it. And so we've not really understood it, but we also never put it out. We never overcome it. And so he's introduced this, this person, this mysterious person that we'll talk about later. There's a person. His name is the Word. He was with God. He was in the beginning, creator of all things, source of all life, uh, source of all light, intelligence, understanding, good, right, and true in the human race. Uh, that's who he is. And now he says, time out. Uh, let's do a little sidebar. And he begins to talk about some of the key witnesses that he's going to introduce in this court case. And the first, interest, uh, the first witness he's going to introduce is his star witness, is uh, a man named John. We know him as John the Baptist. And uh, for those who've been Christ followers for a while, you may know his story. You know, he was, he was the one who was sent to Israel as a special prophet to prepare the nation for the coming of the Messiah. And so he begins to introduce John. Now, we'll, we'll learn more about John, the star witness, uh, next week in Chapter one, we'll learn more in, a, in a, several weeks in chapter three, but right now he's just introducing his star witness in this opening statement. And so he says, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness, notice that uh, courtroom uh, language there. He came as a witness to testify, courtroom language. Uh, he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, you know, the light from the word, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness. There it is, the word, witness to the light. The true light that gives, that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And so he's beginning to hint where he's going. There was a word who was with God. He is, in him was life. It was the light of the world. And this light, I'm, and my story is about, about to start. He's about to enter into time and space. And so in verse 10, he talks about this light of the world. And he said he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, he is a creator, the world didn't recognize him. 
In fact, as we'll see, it's, it's, it's more than just they didn't, like we didn't recognize the creator when he came to planet Earth. It's that we didn't really want to recognize him. It's, it's even more than just ignorance. It's kind of uh, 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 chosen ignorance. And so in verse 10, he came to that which was his own, you know, his own planet, his own cosmos, but even his own, his own people, the nation of Israel, did not receive him. But there was a minority. So most of the creation, when the creator came, rejected him. But there was a minority report. And in verse 12, where it says, but to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. Now you might want to catch that word there, believed in his name. Uh, this is a key word in the Gospel of John. We'll be coming back to it many times. Uh, uh, to believe in the name. What's that mean, to believe? And what you'll see here is it, it means very different than what we often think today. Often we think, oh, you, you know, do you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. You know, just kind of believe. You know, I guess, you know, whatever. Um, just kind of a, a, light, a light touch belief. But for John, to believe means to receive. Okay, do you see that? There the, uh, to, those who, who, um, to those who received him. To those who believed in his name. To, to believe is to receive. To receive is to believe. What does it mean to receive? In other words, to those who received this one who came into the world. To those who received him as their God, as their creator, as their Lord, as who he claimed to be. You see, who followed him. Who gave their lives to him, as we'll see played out in the Gospel of John. To those who bought into him. Then it says that he gave the right to become children of God. Something supernatural happened to those people. That when they believed, when they received, when they gave their lives, something supernatural happened. There was a change that happened inside of them. There was a brand new relationship with God that happened. The DNA of God got transferred into their lives. It's a whole new life. In chapter 3, Jesus will explain this when he talks about being born again. What that looks like. And so he says in verse 13, these were children who were born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of husband's will. I'm not talking about a a physical birth, he says. I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about being born of God, a supernatural spiritual birth. Now, in verse 14, he goes back to the main storyline. Remember in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, he created the whole world, and him was life. Now he, creates, he comes back to the punchline of this chapter, and he says, and, and there was a time and place when the Word became flesh, and he made his dwelling amongst us. So I so say, here's the punchline. The creator of the universe, this Word, the source of all things, there was a time and a place when the creator of the world entered into time and space and he became one of us. The word became flesh. You cannot get more graphic than that. He did not say he became a human being. He doesn't say he became a man. He said he became flesh. He wants us to understand he's truly one of us. He's truly human. And we'll come back to that later. And it says, and we've seen his glory. Of course, in the Old Testament, whenever God shows up, there's glory. And he says, and, and so when God came, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one, uh, the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John says, we were there. We were eyewitnesses. We got to see it when this God who created all things came into time and, and space. We were there. We saw the glory. And he says, and if I had to sum it up, two words come to mind. One is grace and one is uh, truth. He said, he, he, that if I had to sum up what he was like, it was just this amazing love that we didn't deserve, uh, just incredible grace and truth, truth about who God is and how life is and how life works. Verse uh, 15, 
And so now he goes back to his star witness, John the Baptist, and he gives, just gives us a taste of the testimony that John will be giving in the coming chapters. He says, John testifies concerning him. Notice that testifies, courtroom language. John testifies concerning him. He cries out and says, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Uh, John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus. He was born a few months before Jesus. So he was older than Jesus. He started his prophetic ministry before Jesus. In that culture, that meant that he would deserve greater honor. Born, he's older, he started his ministry. But John says, no, in this case, actually, um, he who comes after me was actually uh, surpasses me because he was before me. See, what he's saying is what John claimed back in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. He says John the Baptist recognized this, this pre-existence thing of Jesus. He's a star witness, he's an example of the testimony of who Jesus is. And then he says, and from verse 16, from the fullness of his grace, of, of Christ's grace, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. So the word became flesh, we've seen his glory Um, we've experienced his grace and truth. And he said, and from the fullness of his grace, the overflow of his grace, um, we've received one blessing after another. Now, this is really not the best translation. Um, Literally, in the Greek, it says, and from uh, the fullness of his grace, we have received grace against grace. Grace instead of grace. Grace for grace, grace upon grace, that from the fullness to overflow, he's, he's like, he was like a person whose grace was just flowing out of him and just being around him. It was like wave after wave of grace just kind of crashing against the, the shores of our life. Like being around Jesus was just grace after grace after grace. And it was just overflowing out of him. and was just, just kind of washing over our life, grace upon grace upon grace. And he said, for the law was given through Moses... You know, the Old Testament, um, a great gift of God. It tells us who God is. It tells us what God respects of us. It tells us how life is supposed to be lived. It was a great gift, of course, but the law could never change us from the inside to make us capable of that life. And so ultimately it condemned us. He said that's what the law did. But he said grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus that we fully understood who God is, his amazing love for us, the truth about who he is, who we are, and how to have a relationship. And so in verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God. This is axiomatic in scripture, that no one has ever seen God in all his fullness, but God the one and only, talking about Jesus now, who is at the Father's side, remember he was with God, Uh, he's made him known. And so no one's really ever known exactly what God's like, but Jesus has come now to to reveal who God is. That's that's why he came. And so John starts off this opening statement to his gospel. Uh, Here's who Jesus is. Here's a summary of what I'm going to demonstrate in this whole gospel. And everything that he says in this opening intro, he's going to back it up now with his book. In the rest of the book, he's going to be saying, here's where I got this uh, intro from. Uh, I'm going to be bringing what John the Baptist says. I'm bringing what Jesus says. I'm going to be substantiating this. This is about the intro and a summary of this whole court case of what we're going to discover together in these coming chapters. Now, 
In the time that we have today, what I want to do is take this passage of Scripture and I want to highlight kind of three huge claims that the Apostle John's making in this, uh, this opening prologue. And so there in your note sheet, there's a section called the Prologue Principles, uh, Three Big Claims. And so we want to make uh, kind of real clear, we unpack what is John claiming about Jesus, start there, and then come back at the end and say, well, so what? Uh, what are the implications for our life? So let's jump in. Uh, number one, uh, the first principle that kind of big picture uh, claim is that God has come. This is the big claim. That there's, a, there's a time and a place where a God who created the universe entered into time and space to rescue us. And so this is the claim, that God has come to the planet. Now, if you've been a Christian any length of time, uh, I think we get way too familiar with this claim. Um, this is like the most incredible claim in the history of the world. It's crazy. The God who, I mean, think about this world, how big it is and how complex. The God who created all this became one of us. I mean, that's just like, that's like nuts. And we just get so comfortable. They're like, oh yeah, Jesus came, incarnation. I've heard of that. Yep, go. okay, what's the next point? Um, and, and we miss like, like how shocking a claim this is. Uh, one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. You know, he wrote Chronicles of Narnia, but he also wrote a ton of other stuff. And uh, one of his, his uh, most famous books is a book called Mere Christianity, where he kind of explains the basic claims of, of core Christianity. It's a great book. And uh, look what he says there on your note sheet. I put this quote. He says, then comes the real shock. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he's always existed. We'll see that in John. Uh, he says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. Okay, we'll see that in John. Uh, now, let's get, let, let's get this clear. Among pantheists, like the Indians, he's talking about like in India, like Hinduism, for example, uh, anyone might say that he was a part of God or one with God, and there'd be nothing very odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. God, in their language, meant the being outside the world who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that, you'll see that what this man said was, quite simply, the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. When Jesus Christ came and claimed to be God, I mean, as, as Lewis points out, he's either, he's either crazy or, or he's uh, uh, deluded or he's trying to rip us off or he's the real deal. I mean, there's not a lot of options. This option that Jesus was a great teacher but not really God, that's crazy. Because if you're a great teacher, you don't go around claiming to be God, Right? Like, like you, lock, you lock people up like that, you know? And so, so we miss it, but this is the central core claim of Christianity. There's a time and a place when the God who created time and space entered in, the creator became part of the creation. Um, now, of course, this raises huge questions. Like, well, how could that work? How could the unlimited one become limited? How could the infinite become finite? And what about this, I thought there was just one God. Now we got multiple gods running around? Like, what happened here? Right? And so it raises questions. And so John is very careful in how he lays out this opening statement about what actually happened. And, and I want to take some time with this and unpack it. So take your Bibles. We're going to go to John 1.1. And I want to take this verse and unpack it very carefully. 
John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. Now, let's, let's start with that phrase, in the beginning. Okay, you're, you're somewhat familiar with your Bibles, probably a lot of you. Um, uh, some of you not so much, but you know, a lot of us have kind of been around a little while. Um, when you hear the words, in the beginning, what does that bring to your mind? Genesis, right? In the, how does it go? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? That, that's the beginning of the story. And so John's writing to people who are familiar with the Old Testament, and he says, in the beginning. Now, the moment he says those words, the exact same words as the words of Genesis, anyone reading it goes back to the beginning of the story. I mean, this, is not, this is not just uh, like, hey, how do I start my story about Jesus? I don't know. Well, I don't know. In the beginning, you know, let's just start at the beginning. Now, this is intentional. And, and so what John is saying is, in the beginning, and your mind says, God created the heavens. He goes, yeah, let's go back to that beginning, and let me tell you the rest of the story. Okay? There's more to the story than meets the eye. In the beginning was the word, that there was someone there. Now, this word that he chooses, word, it's an interesting word. Uh, in, in Greek, it's the word logos. You might want to write that down, logos, L-O-G-O-S. Uh, it's a very interesting word. It, um, it, it's a word that to Greek philosophers have been using for 600, like if, you're, if you were a Greek and, and you were kind of trained in, in, in you know, Greek uh, thought, uh, this had been a word that had been around for 600 years that had been used to describe um, the kind of um, the force that holds the world together. That might be a good way to put it. Um, like, like Greek philosophers for 600 years, they've been looking at this universe, and it's, in, it's incredibly complex, and it's beautiful, and it's, it's so ordered. And they've been looking at this thing, and they're saying, man, there has got to be like a force, some kind of rational mind, something that's holding this world together. And they didn't know what to call it, they didn't think of it as a person. They thought of it as more as like a force. <coughs> and they, they called it the logos. And so the, the logos holds the world together. And so for, for Greeks, this was a very famous word. Now, interesting, for Hebrews, it was our uh, Jewish people, it was also a powerful word. Because in the Old Testament, the word of God is a very powerful phrase. I mean, by his word, God created by his word, God redeems. By his word, God reveals. By his word, uh, God heals. And, and in fact, in the Old Testament, the word of God, and not just in the Old Testament, but in the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, in that forth, the word had become um, uh, almost, it's like, like often personified, uh, almost like a distinct person from God, but, but, but you know, personification. You know what I'm talking about, personification? For example, in the book of, uh, of Proverbs in the Old Testament, wisdom is often personified. You know, wisdom calls out in the streets. Wisdom throws a banquet. In fact, in, in chapter 8 of Proverbs, um, there's a passage about the creation, and wisdom is speaking. And wisdom says, um, when God created the world, I was daily at his side as a craftsman helping him. You see what I'm saying? That's a personification. Um, where, where wisdom almost becomes like a person, you know, pers you know, like personified. Well, the same thing had happened in Jewish literature with the word word. 
that, that the word of God had almost become this agent, this messenger of, of, uh, of kind of that, that carried out God's plans. For example, there on your note sheet, look at some verses from the Old Testament. Um, Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Uh, look at the next one. Psalm 107.20, he sent forth his word and healed them. Do you see it? It's almost like a messenger. It doesn't just say God healed them. No, he sent forth his word and healed them. Uh, look at uh, Isaiah 55.11. So is my word that comes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You see this? It's almost a personification. I'm sending out my word. My word's going to go out and do thus and so and accomplish and so on and then come back. It's, it's almost like this identity of itself, like a person. Or the next one, Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me. So it's not just God spoke, but this word came. And so for the Jewish mindset, the word of the Lord had almost become like this separate personification. Not that it was a different person, but it was separate personification. And it was a powerful word. And so when John opens up his gospel, in the beginning was the logos. If you're Greek, you're hearing, oh yeah, we know about that. This is the force that holds the world together. And if you're a Jew, it's like, yes, we know this is the one who's at God's side who carries out his plans. And John says, okay, yes, but let me tell you more. This word was a real person. It wasn't just a force. It wasn't just a personification. This word is a real person. And then he goes on to describe this person. And he says, and the word was with God. So this word is separate from God. It's not just a different name for God. There is, his, his, this person is with God. It's different. And yet, somehow, he's the same as God. He is God. So he's a distinct, separate person, and the same as. You see how carefully he's laying out this mystery. And so he's choosing his words carefully. And so what it turns out as we open up the New Testament and the Gospel of John, it turns out that this God that we serve is much more complicated than we and complex than we anticipated. It's almost like in the Old Testament, God took 2,000 years to drive this key idea into the human race that there is only one God. One of the key ideas of the Old Testament, there's only one God. There's not multiple gods. There's only one God. It took Israel 2,000 years to get straight on that. Remember how they're always running after other gods and idolatry? It took them 2,000 years to get clear on this. There is only one God. And by the time of Jesus, that's one thing that the nation was clear on. Idolatry was no longer an issue. They had finally gotten clear of that. And once the human race got clear on this through the, through the Jewish people that there's only one God, God says, now let me tell you the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is it's more complex. There's only one God, but there are three persons in this Godhead. And so the first one we're getting introduced here in the Gospel of John, is Jesus, uh, the Son. Later on in chapters uh, 14 through 16, we'll get introduced to the, the, the second member, the third member of the Trinity, uh, the Spirit. You know? And so we have a Father and a Son and a Spirit, all distinct, three separate personalities and yet one uh, God. Now, of course, uh, this is powerful because what it means is at the center of the universe, at the center of all reality, there is a God who's existed always in relationship of love and community. 
that community and relationship and love are at the center of the whole cosmos. You see, the behind all reality is relationship of love and community that affects what life is all about and it affects uh, uh, what our lives are about. And so uh, obviously this is a great mystery um, and we're never gonna explain it because in our world you can't be one and three. In our dimension, we, we have no experience where a person is with one and three. We, there's nothing that we can analogize to this. We can't really say, oh yeah, I, I've experienced that. You know, it's like there's, there's no real analogy for it. And so uh, what, we're, what we're being presented is that God is more complex than us. Oh, big surprise. Um, it's interesting, the other day I was listening to a message and they were talking about sci- how scientists have now, de- uh, have now identified 11 different dimensions of reality. Uh, like, you know, we, we exist in a three-dimensional world. We talk about a fourth dimension or a fifth dimension, you know, time or whatever. The, the scientists have now, de- have now identified 11 different dimensions of reality. And what the Bible is telling us is the God who created all things exists in another dimension. And in his dimension, it is not antithetical to say one is one and three. You see? Now, now, beyond that, we can't go. We can't really explain that. The Bible just reveals that. And that's part of what's being revealed, this complexity of God. But this is an important truth because what it means is that when a man or a woman becomes a follower of Jesus and is born again, they enter a a relationship with this triune God where they have a father who is over them, a brother who is beside them, and a spirit who is within them. You see? And, and so for every Christ follower, this becomes something we may not understand, but it's a, it's a reality. We have a father that we pray to who knows all our needs. We have a brother who walks beside us to teach us and to model for us life. And we have a spirit within us to empower us to be the people. So the father, son, and spirit comes with inside the, every believer's life. And it's a powerful reality. Now, so, so um, this truth that that the John is revealing that, that there's a time and a place where God became part of time and space. This is a truth that separates Christianity from every other religion and cult in the world. Uh, it's, it's, it's a dividing line. Like, no one else believes this. Are, are you with me on this? No one else believes this. Only Christians believe this. That the God who created all things became a part of the creation to give us life. No one else believes that. Uh, for example, there in your note sheet, I put a great quote by Philip Yancey from his book, The Jesus That I Never Knew, which is an excellent book, by the way. And he said, uh, Jesus' audacious claims about himself pose what may be the central problem of all history, the dividing point between Christianity and all other religions. And I'd say cults, too. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Mormonism, whatever. Um, although Muslims and increasingly Jews <coughs> respect Jesus as a great teacher and a prophet, no Muslim can imagine Muhammad claiming to be Allah any more than a Jew can imagine Moses claiming to be Yahweh. You see, but that's what we have in Christianity. Jesus claims to be Yahweh. Likewise, Hindus believe in many incarnations, but not one incarnation, while Buddhists have no categories in which to conceive of a sovereign God becoming a human 
being. So this is the first claim. There is a time and a place where the God who created all things became part of time and space to rescue us, okay? Number two. The second claim. The second claim is really important for us. We'll talk about this later, but it goes like this, is that God is like Jesus. Uh, so, so God came to the planet, and, and so this kind of leads then to number two, that God is like Jesus. That, that notice that God has revealed himself in Jesus. That's why we're calling this series Revealed. Um, in fact, this is one of the reasons why Jesus' name is the Word. He's God's Word to us. Uh, he's, he's God's message to us. And one of the things he's communicating is who he is. You see, in the past, in the Old Testament, God revealed himself through prophets and priests and kings and dreams and visions and words and miracles. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. You want to know what I'm like? Here I am. How do I think? How do I feel? How do I respond? How do I react? What do I want? This is who I am. Look at me. Look at Jesus. There on your note sheet, I put a great verse from Hebrews chapter 1, where it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, and many times, in various ways, talking about the Old Testament. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So, so God has spoken through his Son. And this is what John is getting at in 118. We just unpacked 1 1. There's three key verses we're going to unpack 1 1, 118, 114. So 118 is our one this time. And it says, no one has ever seen God. Axiomatic in scripture, no one's ever seen him in all his fullness. So we don't know what he's like, but God the one and only, talking about the word, who is at the Father's side, he's in the closest relationship with the Father, he has made him what? No, you say he's made him what? Now catch that. What John is saying is that the reason Jesus came, the word came, was to make God known. So if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Now, here's the thing. The good news for us is that John says that when Jesus came, there are two words that are going to describe him. We looked at these words, grace and truth. If i got to sum up the message of what God is like, here it is, grace and truth. This amazing love we don't deserve and this truth about the way life really works and who God really is and who we are. And, and so, so that's the second claim, that not only God has come, but now because he's come, God's like Jesus, and we can learn what he's like. Now, the third claim. The third claim is that he came to give us life. So you're following this. The word became flesh. Um, God, God has become one of us. But why? But he came to give us life. This is the third claim. And the key verse here we're going to look at is 114. Let's unpack this. 114 says, the word became flesh. Uh, this word who created the world, there was a time and place when he became flesh. Now, this is interesting. Um, there was a... In John's day, when he was writing this gospel, there was a false teaching movement that was trying to infiltrate the church. And basically, it was a religious movement that kind of came out of Greek philosophy. So if you take, like, you take Greek philosophy, you mix it with Christianity, you get this movement. 
And basically, it taught that, that all the material world is evil. Uh, anything material world you know, is evil, that spirit is good. And these, these teachers were called the docetists. And so what they taught is that when Jesus came, he really didn't take on a physical body because that would have polluted him. Uh, he, he just looked like he was human. He wasn't really human. He just kind of looked like he was human. And they had a whole different route to salvation and so on. And so John takes these on both barrels and says, no, no, no. When, when the word came to the planet, the word became flesh. He was as real as real could be. He became human. So not only was the word God, the word was human. And he gets as graphic as possible, flesh and blood. I mean, he got tired. He got thirsty. He got hungry. He felt pain. He could die. He was human. And John's just nailing this down. So the word became flesh. And then he says, and he made his dwelling with us. So this interesting word. Um, made his dwelling in the Greek is the Greek word tabernacled. Literally says that, that the word became flesh and he tabernacled or he tented with us. Now John's picking up a theme from the Old Testament. Uh, you remember when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt and they were heading to the promised land. They all lived in tents, of course. And God said, I want to come and live with my people so they can see my glory. And I, I want to live right in the midst. They live in tents. I want to live in tent. And so Moses, build me a tent, and we'll call this tent the tabernacle. Because I want to tabernacle, tent with my people, and I want to be in the midst. I want to dwell with them, is what he said. I want to dwell with them. And, and he said, so I want, put me right in the middle of the nation, in the nation, three tribes to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. I want to dwell right in the middle. I want to be with them so they can know me, have relationship, and they can see my glory. And so what does John say is that the word became flesh, and he tabernacled amongst us. We have bodies. He takes on a body. He becomes one of us. Why? So that we can see his glory. See verse 14? The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. And so, so, so God has come close. He came to Israel in a tent. He's come even closer to us. He's taken on a body. But why has he come? Why has the word been made flesh? Why has he tabernacled? Why did he do this? Well, the answer is to give us a new life. And we see that in verse 12. Yet to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born of God, new life, as we'll see in the coming weeks, new DNA, new start, a life that changes now radically when we come to Jesus, but also goes on for all eternity. He came to give us life. And this becomes the theme, in my mind, this is like the theme of the book of John, life that he's come to give us life. And we're going to see it time and time again. Like, for example, in chapter 3, Jesus is going to talk about being born again, and he's going to invite us to be born again and experience his life. In chapter 4, he's going to talk to us about why we get thirsty in life and about the water of life. In chapter 5, he's going to talk about how we die naturally, but the Son has life in himself. And if we believe in the Son, we cross over from death to life the moment we, beget, we believe. And then in the next life, that life will raise us from the dead. And then in chapter 6, he talks about here's the bread of life to feed on in your life. And in chapter 7, he talks about the rivers of living water 
that will, full, that will, that will pour out of us to refresh others as Christ followers. And in chapter 10, he says, I'm like a great shepherd, and you're like my sheep, and I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And in chapter 14, he says, I am the way, and I'm the truth, and I am the, the life. You see, it's all about life. That he has come and broken into time and space so that you and I can have life. We can move from death to life here and now, be transformed, and, then we'll, and it will go on forever. It's a life that will never stop. And so that is the topic. That's the whole point of the book. Word became flesh so that we could have life. That's, that's the message. Now, as we wrap this up, in the back page, you've got uh, some questions there. There's a section called uh, the prologue. What's it all mean? And I want to get as, as practical as I can with all this. And has three questions that kind of impact our life from these claims that John has made. Number one, first question I ask you today is who is Jesus to you? What's your image of Jesus? When you think of Jesus, um, what comes to mind? Here's what I can guarantee you. Whatever comes to mind is probably way too small. Hey, uh, and I'd put myself in this category right in there. It's like when it, when it comes to this teaching about who Jesus is, I feel like I'm sort of in preschool, you know, and what we're reading is doctoral level stuff. It's like, like he is so big, he is so huge, we have no idea. And man, this impacts our lives. We come, we pray to Jesus. How big is your Jesus? You know, when you're going through a jam at your work or you got a problem in your life, how big's your Jesus? You pray to Jesus, you ask Jesus for help. Well, how big's your Jesus? It makes a, it makes a difference, doesn't it? Um, there's a great story in uh, one of C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. Some of you may have read it, but you know the story. The four little kids get pulled out of, uh, of World War II England, and they're, they're sent into this magical land of Narnia, and they have many adventures there. Many times they go, and the youngest of the four children is Lucy, and, and this is not her first trip to Narnia, and Prince Caspian, she's been there before, and so she's met Aslan, the great lion, who is the son of the emperor over the seas, kind of the Christ figure, and, and so she's met Aslan before, but in this particular trip, she hasn't met him yet, and she's going through some hard times. She turns a corner. All of a sudden, she sees Aslan. She's so Glad to see him, but she's just blown away because he's so much bigger than he was the last time she came to Narnia. And so she says to him, Aslan, you're so much bigger. Are you older now? Then he says, no. He says, it's not that I'm older, it's you're older. He says, every year you grow, I will get bigger. <laughs> hey, men and women, this is how it should be as Christ followers. Every year you grow, Jesus should get bigger. You see, not because he's bigger, but because your understanding and your maturity is growing. You're understanding who he is, who we pray to, who we follow, who is this man who came into time and space. He, it turns out he's got a pretty amazing resume. That, that we see him as the man, John's going to help us see him as, as the God, right, who came. He is both. He's the God-man. And so for one guy who gets this really well is the Apostle Paul. And there in your note sheet, I love how he puts it, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, and then chapter 2, Christ is the visible, this is from New Living Translation, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything else was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, 
God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see, the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he catches, he holds all creation together. He not just made the world, he holds it together. There is no such thing as laws of nature. There is Jesus. He is the law of nature. He's what does it. He holds this whole incredible cosmos together by the word of his power. That's who he is. You see what I'm saying? That our, our, our view of him needs to grow a little bit. And then he goes on and he says, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. I like how Brennan Manning puts it in his book, Ruthless Trust. Next quote, Jesus is the power and the wisdom and the holiness of God Almighty. He is creatively present 264 trillion miles from earth on the star Upsilon Andromeda. In other words, he fills the universe. No thought can contain him. No word can express him. He transcends all human concepts, considerations, and expectations. He is the great beyond in our midst, and though in our midst, he's still beyond anything we can intellectualize or imagine. Jesus Christ will always be a scandal to the murky, immodest theory-making of the intelligentsia because he cannot be comprehended by the rational, scientific, and finite mind. He is above us. He is the great one. He is the source of life. He's the source of our life. Who is your Jesus? And when you face challenges in your life and you face problems in your life and you don't know what to do in your life, how big is your Jesus? Is he the creator of the cosmos, the mover of every molecule that moves? You see? Or he is an ancient figurehead who did some a few amazing things on planet Earth. You see? How big is your Jesus? This impacts all of our life. The goal is, is that every year our Jesus should be bigger and every year our worship should be deeper. Because the more we understand him, the more we bow down, kind of the way you bow down, you see like a half dome, you see something amazing, like that's amazing. Well, when you see the maker of amazing, you bow down, right? See, the NBA doesn't have all the amazing things. All right. Now, number two. The second question for you is what is, I should say, what is your God really like? What's your God really like? Um, John makes this claim that Jesus really came to reveal God. In other words, that we all have an opinions about God, don't we? Like, we, you know, you've heard people say, oh, I don't think God would do that, or, well, I don't think God's that way, or, well, I think God's like this, and so we all have opinions about God. And, and throughout the history of the world, everyone's had opinions about God, and all the major religions of the world have opinions about God. Here's how it works. But what John is claiming is that we don't have to just have opinions anymore. That God has revealed himself. And that God is like Jesus. And that if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And so what this means is for us as Christ followers is that if we're going to grow up spiritually, we have to always be taking our view of God and kind of subjecting it to Jesus and running it through the grid of Jesus saying, does this make sense? Because the reality is, even as Christ followers, we have all kinds of crazy ideas about who God is, right? Have you ever struggled with this in your life? Oh, I don't think God loves me. 
I think God's mad at me. I, I think God, I don't, why don't God care? And we, we have these crazy ideas, and the only way for us to grow is to take every idea about who God is and run it through the grid of Jesus and say, is this true or is it not? And when we do this, this has the power to set us free from our misconceptions about who God is because he, he's the truth. He's the truth about God. There you note she had another quote from Brennan Manning, a different book, Abba's Child. I love this. He says, when Jesus said that whoever saw him saw the Father, that's in John 14, by the way, his hearers were shocked beyond belief. For those of us who have heard these words so often, they've lost their shock value. Yet they contain the power to shatter all our projections and our false images of God. Jesus affirmed that he was the incarnation of the Father's feelings and attitudes towards humankind. God is not other than is seen in the person of Jesus. Thus Karl Rahner, he's a famous theologian, thus Karl Rahner's phrase, Jesus is the human face of God. Now here's a question I have for you. As we go through this series, I'm going to ask you, who is your God? And when your God is different than Jesus Christ, the question is, will you change your view of God or will you change your view of Jesus? There is another choice. You see? Like, like we all, I can guarantee you that as we go through this series, at times Jesus will be more liberal than you are. And I can guarantee you at times we go through this series, Jesus will be more conservative than you are. You see? And, and the thing is, we have to decide do we just kind of keep on holding on to our opinions of God that we've been taught? You know, maybe we grew up with these. Maybe we figured it out on our own. Maybe we, it's through the media. Maybe it's through our church. Maybe it's through our parents. We, have, we all have these crazy ideas about who God is. And the question is, when, when those ideas collide with Jesus of Nazareth, who wins? Do we hold on to our ideas of God? Or do we let go of our ideas of God and let Jesus reshape them? Because this is what John is saying. If you want to know what God is like, you look at the face of Jesus. That's why he came. No man has seen God at any time, but Jesus has come. The, the eternal uh, word of God has come so that we might know him. Okay? Number three, the third question is, are you ready to follow? Now, in this, this claim that's, that John's making, the word became flesh in order to give us life. He is going to teach us the path of life. He's going to say, here is the path to life. Here's how life is to be lived. Here is how you have a relationship with God. Here's how it works. Here's how you, here, if you want to experience life to the fullest, this is how you do it. And he's going to explain that to us week by week. It's the recurrent theme in the Gospel of John, the path to life. That's what John's about. The question is, though, and what John wants us to understand is this is not automatic, when Jesus came, most people rejected him. It's only to those who receive him as their God and as their leader and as their Lord. Only those people experience life. How we respond to the teaching of Jesus determines our destiny. Not only eternal destiny, but our temporal destiny. And so the question is, as we go through this, will you follow him? And when his says this is a path to life and it's different than what you believe or it's different than what you think or it's not what you want to do or it's hard to do or it's painful to do, the question is, will you follow? Do you truly believe that in Jesus of 
Nazareth is the word made flesh to point out the path to life. We're going to find out whether we believe it every week. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this amazing passage of Scripture and these incredible claims that are so big they're almost hard for us to get our hands around that there was a time and place where you came to rescue us. And so we thank you for that and we pray that we would have a heart as a church of submission that as you lead us, we will follow because the truth will set us free. And so Lord, we pray that we would be willing to submit all our ideas about you to, to you, to who you really are. And, and we'd, we'd allow you to re-educate us what it, who you are, how to have a relationship, what life is all about. While our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, I want to talk to those of you who've never given your life to Christ. Maybe this is the very first time you've heard the claims of Christianity, that there was a time and a place when the God who created time and space came. He came to die so that we might have life. And he's offering life to you today, a whole new life, a whole new start. And you're here today, and and for whatever reason, today is your day. I mean, God is speaking to you. You can sense it. Your heart's beating faster right now. There's a hunger in your heart for God. You want this, Jesus. You want this new life. You can't put it into words, but even as I'm describing it right now, you know what I'm talking about. You want him. You want this life, and you want it now. And if you're ready to receive him as your God and as your creator and as your savior, I'm gonna give you a chance right now. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna just pray a simple prayer and if this expresses a desire of your heart, you just pray along under your breath or inside your heart and mind that God will hear and he will respond. So just pray with me. Dear Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to forgive me for all my rebellion against you. I ask you to cleanse me Forgive my sins and send your spirit into my life to change me from the inside out, to cause me to be born again. Teach me to follow you and save a place in the next life for me. Well, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If you just made that request of Jesus, I'd love to know about that. I'd like to send you a letter give you a Bible, some, some new steps in your walk with God. Uh, but the most important thing Jesus said is our first step of following him is to be baptized. It's a way of saying goodbye to the old and hello to the new. And we're having a baptism in just uh, two weeks. And so if you're serious about following Jesus, if you're not serious, don't let me know. But if you're serious about following Jesus, then write your name in that card that I prayed this prayer and I want to be baptized. And we will contact you this week more information about your walk, but also schedule that for you so you can begin this new life with Christ. So Lord, we come now as your church and we pray that you would be the living word to us, the word of life. We pray that we would listen and hear and respond and that we would live life at a whole new level, that you would fill this place with your spirit as we become a church of passionate Christ followers of the living word. We pray this in your name, amen.